Randy Alcorn once said, as you go through life, don't let your feelings, real as they are, invalidate your need to let the truth of God's words guide your thinking. Remember that the path to your heart travels through your mind. Truth matters. As you know, there are many religions in the world and they all have their own truth claims. Right? They all profess to some degree or another to have cornered the market on truth. But the, the principal difference between Christianity and all the other major religions is that our truth claims are not realized through a religious system or through adherence to a strict set of religious rules or even through a heightened awareness of one's own spirituality. No, the truth claims of Christianity are realized through a person, Jesus Christ, which means whatever truth there is in Christianity, it is found in and only in Jesus Christ who not only claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way, by the way, the only truth and the only life, but he proved it by being born of a virgin, living a perfect life, dying an atoning death on a cross, raising from the dead, and ascending to his throne in heaven, thereby not only validating his identity as the Son of God, but doing something that no other religious leader has ever done. Because every other religious leader who has ever died has stayed dead. Right? Jesus Christ is the only one who's ever risen from the dead, which was and is and will remain the ultimate display of authority, power, and truth for all of eternity. Because Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. By the authority of God, Jesus overcame death and hell, giving new life and that eternal to all who would call upon that mighty name, our source of all authority and truth, Jesus Christ. The fact is, there's no other religion or religious leader who deserves to even be mentioned in the same conversation as Jesus. Because he alone is the ultimate truth claim. All others combined amount to nothing more than a feeble, feckless, powerless, and perverse attempt to reduce God down to something or someone that we can manage, that we can control and quantify and define. But listen, our God is indefinable. He's unquantifiable. He cannot be controlled or managed by men. And so I have these conversations from time to time with people who follow other religions, people who want to tell me about their God, and I understand that. And so in turn, I like to share what a few credible witnesses have had to say about our God. Job said, the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. Job 37, 23, he also asked the question, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They're higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They're deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Job 11, 7 through 11. David said, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Psalm 33, 6. Jeremiah said, oh, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Jeremiah 32, 17, and one of my favorite passages describing God in all of scripture, Amos 4, 13. Amos said, for behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Now, I'm sorry, but tell me again what your God can do. You see, I don't want the authority in my life to come from a counterfeit God. 
I don't want my source of truth in this life to be a counterfeit, a, a cheap and powerless imitation of the one true God because our God is the creator God, the almighty God, a holy and eternal God. He is matchless, incomparable, and immutable, which means he's also the only authentic source of authority and truth in this world. Everything else is a counterfeit, a cheap imitation of the real thing. Uh, the enemy of our souls, that great dragon, the deceiver of the whole world, as John describes him in Revelation, has not and cannot create anything. All he's able to do is to mimic, to impersonate or pervert what God has already created and accomplished in this world, and yet he's been incredibly effective at doing just that. And listen, not only among the lost, but among countless believers who have been led astray by false teaching and false teachers who contradict the authority of God by counterfeiting a version of his message to the world. And as we're going to see in our story today, as we continue working our way through the book of Revelation, it's going to become increasingly important that believers understand exactly what it is and who it is that we actually believe in. Because as the final age of this earth draws to a close, the intensity of the enemy's efforts to deceive and destroy will continue to increase. And listen, many who are not firmly rooted in the authority and truth of who God is and what his word says will fall away from the faith. It's happening already. So first of all, do you know what you believe? And if so, is it based on the authority of God's word? Listen, can you find what you believe in the Bible? I'm not talking about taking a verse nine miles out of context and then forming your own doctrine around it. I'm talking about reading the word. Can you find what you believe in the Bible? Or is it simply based on something you've been told was true by someone who sounded convincingly spiritual? What does the Bible actually say about the authority of God and the truth of his word? Could you explain it if you wanted to? Could you defend it if you had to? These are questions we should be asking ourselves because the disinformation and half-truths about who God is and what he says about himself are becoming increasingly common among believers who are becoming increasingly illiterate in terms of what the Bible actually says, which we're gonna get into really more next week in the second half of this sermon. Listen, I'm not talking about winning arguments for Christ. By the way, I'm talking about winning hearts for Christ because we cannot win anyone's heart for Christ without standing on the authority and truth of his word and what it says about who God is and who he isn't. Otherwise, we open ourselves up and others to deception, a counterfeit version of the gospel, as we'll see as we continue in our story covering chapter 13 this week and next. So again, this will be a two-part sermon covering the one chapter. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last week at Revelation chapter 13, and we'll cover the first 10 verses today. Let's read it together. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads, with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? 
And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, that's three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. At the end of chapter 12, we saw last week the woman, which is Israel, fleeing into the desert after giving birth to a son, the Messiah, because the dragon, Satan, was trying to destroy both the woman and the child, but he fails in his efforts to do so. And so the chapter ends at verse 17, which says, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. That's where we pick this story back up today with the dragon standing on the sand of the sea, summonsing a beast up out of the sea to make war, John says, on the saints and to conquer them. Okay, these are the rest of her offspring, the Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus who are still on the earth. Uh, The ancient world, especially the Jewish people as a whole, commonly associated the sea with evil. They regarded it as a wild, untamed, terrifying place. And so, for instance, uh, while ancient Israel under Solomon had a navy, Hiram, the king of Tyre, supplied the sailors, which we see in 1 Kings 9, 26 and 27, because again, ancient Israel was deeply wary of the sea. For them, it represented evil and chaos that continually seemed to resist God, which there are references to, by the way, in Psalm 74, Psalm 89, uh, Isaiah 57, just to name a few. So it makes sense that from the very place Israel associates with evil, chaos, and destruction, a terrible beast comes forth, which represents the Antichrist as referred to by John in his other writings, including 1 John chapters two and four, uh, also 2 John seven, we'll come back to those, and who is described by the Apostle Paul as well in 2 Thessalonians two, uh, about three through 12. and so. As the dragon stands on the seashore, the beast emerges from the sea and it has 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads, which again, we'll come back to in just a moment. And it looks like a leopard, yet it has feet like a bear's, a mouth like a lion's and 10 horns. And so it resembles all four beasts that Daniel saw emerge from the sea before the Son of Man appeared in Daniel 7, one through eight, also verse 21. And we know that those beasts in Daniel symbolize earthly kingdoms. So this beast, which is a composite of them all, is given authority over every human empire, every earthly kingdom, which at the time, of course, would have been Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But but as a prophetic vision, of course, it would include every earthly kingdom that would ever succeed those kingdoms, including the kingdoms of earth today. And the beast demands absolute allegiance and worship from those kingdoms by the authority given to it by the dragon. And so this beast or antichrist is commonly understood to be a current or future political world leader who will unite the nations of the earth under his satanic authority. It's a counterfeit authority in order to rally the governments and societies of the world against the people of God. Okay, 
this is the deification of secular authority, a self-focused counterfeit power set to rule the nations and oppose God and his people. And so the beast has 10 horns and seven heads and on the horns are diadems and on each head a blasphemous name. So uh, the very description of the appearance of the beast is blasphemous itself, but it's not only his physical appearance that is blasphemous, it's his every action, as John goes on to describe over and over and over again, the blasphemous activity of the beast. That word blasphemy, by the way, it's blasphemia in the, uh, the Greek, means to slander or to speak evil or detract from someone's good name. Of course, in this case, it's the very name of God himself. And so this antichrist, this beast, is speaking out against the name and authority of God by comparing himself to God. And yet because he has nothing original to say or to do, because all he can do is try and pervert the creation and creativity of God, everything the Antichrist does is a counterfeit to what God has already done. Verse three says he seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So the Antichrist falsely imitates the true Christ who was slain and then raised from the dead. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, Paul describes the Antichrist as proclaiming himself to be God. So he tries to make himself like the Christ, and yet he's nothing more than a counterfeit. Also, those who worship the beast proclaim, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? He's mimicking David's praise to God who declared, who is like the Lord our God, who's seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth, Psalm 113, five and six. Also Israel's praise in Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And as we'll see in the second half of this chapter next week where the followers of the Antichrist are marked on their hands or foreheads with the mark of the beast, it's nothing more than a cheap imitation of the saints who were sealed by God on their foreheads in chapter seven, verses two and three. We'll also see the second beast who is the false prophet call down fire from heaven. It's a parody of the true prophet of God, Elijah. And then in verse 15, as we'll see next week, the second beast was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak. It's an attempt to compare himself to God by breathing life, who breathed life into mankind. And then as we look even further ahead, there's a prostitute in John's vision, chapter 17, clothed in purple and scarlet as opposed to the bride of Christ, clothed in white in chapter 19, verses seven and eight. And of course, together with the second beast in the second half of this chapter, those two beasts and the dragon form a false trinity, counterfeit of the real trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the Antichrist blasphemes the name and authority of God by presenting a counterfeit version of both while simultaneously pursuing and martyring the believers still on the earth. John says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the, uh, with the sword he must be slain. Th this is a warning to believers, both Jew and Gentile, of what is coming in these last days. Robert Mounts, great scholar, says, in view of the impending persecution at the hand of the beast, it is certain that captivity and death by the sword await those who faithfully follow the lamb. There's a certain grim reality that lies ahead for believers. They will be taken into captivity and many will be put to death by the sword. As their master met death at the hands of a hostile secular power, so also they will meet the same fate. This reading of the Greek text stresses the inevitability of persecution and death for the faithful. 
which is why John describes this as a call for endurance, the endurance and faith of the saints. Because for those who are still on the earth at this point, they're gonna need it. Yet listen, as prophetic as all of this is, as future looking as all of this is, John is clear elsewhere in his writings, as are the other biblical writers, that the spirit of the Antichrist has been active on the earth the whole time and continues to be, in fact, right up to today. Because listen, Satan doesn't know the time of Jesus' return. Mark 13, 32, Jesus said, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Satan has no idea when Jesus will return, so he has always had antichrists in waiting in every generation. All you have to do is look back through history to see the antichrist spirit working through those who do the devil's bidding, okay? The spirit of the antichrist has been active throughout human history with different people actually taking on the mantle of antichrist in each generation. First of all, just the imagery of Daniel 7, and then you add in the blasphemy of uh, Antiochus, the second century Seleucid king uh, in Daniel 7 and 11, shows us the Antichrist was clearly at work in the Old Testament era uh, through leaders of nations. And then the use of divine titles by each generation of the Roman emperors who demanded to be treated and referred to as gods in the New Testament era. They blasphemed God's name and his authority and his people. And of course, Jesus' own teaching that foretold the coming of false Christ generations ago. Matthew 24, 24, he said, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The apostle Paul taught in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the spirit of the Antichrist would attempt to lead the church astray before the return of Christ. And again, John warned the church all throughout his writings about Antichrist being present and active throughout history, through individuals. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. 1 John 4, 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 2 John 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Clearly, this beast, this Antichrist, represents not only a future individual, but also present world powers and individuals throughout history who wage Satan's war against Jesus Christ, his word, and his church because Satan doesn't know when Jesus is coming back. So there are always antichrists ready to move on his command at every point throughout history. And one of the sure giveaways that an antichrist spirit is at work in an individual is when they dishonor, discredit, detract from, blaspheme, the name of God and the people of God. Listen, verse five says, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Who were those haughty and blasphemous words directed toward? Verse six, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name, so they blasphemed the name of God and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. The people of God, that's where it always starts which means we have to be, listen, we have to be so careful and yet it has become so very common today for people even within the church professing believers to speak out 
sometimes ruthlessly against the church, against the people of God, discrediting his name and ours. Whether you realize it or not, when you bash the church, that is a direct assault on the name and authority of God because we're not only his reflection on this earth, we are his body on this earth. I say it all the time. You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. We're his body. He died for the church, which means we are now a part of him. We are his body. And so if you're going to love him, then you have to love all of him. You cannot just love the parts of him you like. No, you love all of him or nothing at all. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 1 John 4, 20, okay, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are united in Christ, which means we share a common spirit and a common purpose. It also means we share a common enemy, and it's not each other. Yet it's one of the greatest counterfeits the enemy has ever convinced us of, this idea that we don't need each other. It's one of the chief ways he seeks to divide the church, because if we don't need each other, then we'll never rely on each other. Yet Paul was clear, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 1 Corinthians 12, 21. We are the body of Christ, like it or not. We need each other. The apostle Peter warned the church, be sober-minded. Be watchful for your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. Listen, that was a warning to all Christians in every age that we have a common enemy who's constantly seeking ways to attack the church and his primary strategy against the church is to attack us from within. You've heard me say it before. How many churches shut down for good because of outside pressures? No, it's always something inside. They fall apart from the inside, from within. In fact, if you read John's letters, to the church, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it becomes very clear very fast that the whole reason he wrote those letters was because the local church was under attack from within. And so he's warning them not to put up with anything from among themselves that was detrimental to the unity of the church. And as harsh and confrontational as John is throughout those letters at times, and boy is he ever, the motivation behind the writing is pure love for the church to maintain the unity of the church because we're not just uh, representing ourselves to this world. We're representing Jesus Christ, right, as his body, and so John takes time to address the disunity within the church for the sake of the very survival of the church. And so the issues called out, man, and those letters couldn't be any more serious. In fact, they were the same issues addressed over and over again by nearly all of the New Testament writers and by Jesus himself. Let's read Matthew 18, right? They all reserved their their harshest criticisms and gravest consequences for those who were working against the church from within the church. And so for instance, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, Paul instructs the church leaders to deal harshly with the people who were sowing disunity in the church. He even goes as far as to say, purge them from among yourselves. He says, don't associate with them at all. Don't even eat with them. John says, don't let them through your door. If they come to your door, don't let them inside your house. Jesus said, cut them off. Treat them as tax collectors and pagans. Have nothing to do with the one who would attempt to divide the church. And John and Jesus, the other apostles, say the very same thing as we'll see. We'll get into this more next week. And again, it seems to be a very hard teaching, and it is. 
but consider the subject of the teaching. It's the church, the true bride of Christ. Jesus died for her, which means we are supposed to fight for her. People out in the world mistreat one another all the time. It's horrible. We've almost come to expect it in this culture. But if someone mistreats your bride, guys, the one you love above all others, the one you've given your life to, you don't stand for that. No, the reaction is both swift and severe, right? You don't mess with my bride. And as we've seen, Jesus and Paul and Peter and John, they all say the same of his bride, the church. We're here to protect her from being attacked by those who would divide her from within. So we fight for her purity and the unity that he's called us to maintain, not merely out of obligation, but out of a great love for the church, for that is our witness to this world. Right? He said the world would know us by the love that we have for one another. That's what enables us to carry out our common purpose, to share the gospel with those who have yet to accept it. But that can only happen as we're united by the Spirit of God, in the truth of God, and under the authority of God as the people of God. We cannot, listen, you cannot love those outside of the church if you do not love those inside the church. You may think you can, but you cannot. There's no reality where a Christian can effectively love those in the world while simultaneously despising the church. And so we should always be willing to ask ourselves before we say or do anything regarding the name of God or the people of God, am I participating in something that is actually anti-Christ, against Christ or his people? Does whatever I'm about to, to listen to or engage in or be a part of, does it bring honor or dishonor to the name of God or to the people of God? That may sound subjective to you, but honestly, it's not all that hard to answer that question if you're being honest with yourself. Simply ask yourself, is whatever I'm about to engage in, that conversation or, or that action or relationship or that participation in something, would I want to make sure that everyone present knows that I'm a Christian right before I do whatever it is I'm about to do? Or would I rather the people who are there not know that I'm a follower of Christ before I do whatever it is I'm about to do. Because if whatever it is you're considering being a part of, if it brings glory to his name, you'll not only have no problem with people knowing you're a Christian, but you will actually want people to understand that he's the reason you're doing it so that he gets the glory and not you. Well, on the other hand, if it dishonors his name, you won't want anyone who's there to know that you're a Christian. Of course, because nobody wants to be a hypocrite. And listen, by the way, I hear people all the time talk about having no regrets. Are you kidding me? Come on. No regrets, really? I understand what they mean by that. But I have more regrets than I can record in a book. It just takes a little bit of humility and honesty on our part. I deeply regret everything I've ever done or said that has brought dishonor to the name of Jesus Christ. And so the key is to recognize it for what it is, even when it looks good and sounds good. If it's going to dishonor the name of Christ or his people, then it is anti-Christ against Christ. Right? Adam and Eve should have picked up on the serpent's slight against the name of God when he tempted them in the garden. 
But they continued to entertain him. He said to the woman, did God actually say you? By the way, you there in the Hebrew is plural. So he's talking to both of them. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, what God actually said in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 was, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So Satan deliberately misquotes God. He twists his words into a counterfeit version of what God actually said in order to try and get Adam and Eve to begin questioning God's own word given directly to them, which makes perfect sense because if you can get someone to question God's word to dishonor the name of God, it's much easier to get them to challenge the authority of God. Notice, after blaspheming the name of God and the people of God in John's vision here, the Antichrist exercises counterfeit authority over the nations. Verse seven, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and the authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. The enemy can only do what he's permitted to do. Whatever authority he exercises is temporary and counterfeit because ultimately he's doing what God dictates. He thinks he's in control. He thinks he can have things his way, but it's all a lie. The enemy is self-deceived, as are so many people today, because we all want Jesus. We just want him on our own terms. We have, I mean, listen, we have no problem with Jesus' love in our lives, nobody does. His strength in our lives, his peace in our lives, his joy in our lives, his healing in our lives, even his freedom in our lives. No, it's his authority in our lives that rubs us the wrong way. Because his authority in our lives gets in the way of us doing the things that look good and sound good to us. This is one of the reasons that alternative gospel messages often become so popular so quickly because if they can invalidate the less popular truth claims in God's word, then they can invalidate the less popular aspects of God's authority in our lives, which means we can focus more on what we want and less on what God wants without any sense of conviction. But listen, all you have to do all you have to do to see that challenging God's authority in your life ultimately doesn't work is to take a look around at our society today. What a mess. Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy write, all of the ideologies, all the utopian promises that have marked this century have proven utterly bankrupt. Americans have achieved what modernism presented as life's great shining purpose, individual autonomy, the right to do what one chooses. Yet this has not produced the promised freedom. Instead, it has led to the loss of community and civility, to kids shooting kids in schoolyards, to citizens huddling in gated communities for protection. We've discovered that we cannot live with the chaos that inevitably results from choice divorced from morality. The fact is, you will never fully experience the love and strength and peace and joy and freedom that Christ has put in you until you fully submit to the authority that he rightfully has over you. Amen. Listen, you military guys, you tell me, Rich, some of you guys in here have been in the military, how effective would a military be if there was no authority, if, if every soldier was permitted to do whatever he or she thought was best, how many battles would that military, how, how many would they win? You tell me. None. How effective are families when there's no authority? 
I'll tell you, our prisons are absolutely full of people who will tell you they grew up without any authority in their lives. I know because I spent years working with prisoners on a regular basis. How effective are local churches who refuse to submit to the authority of God's word? I'm telling you, they end up conforming to the culture instead of transforming it. The truth is, nothing in this world works like it should or like it could without authority also working in it, and neither will your life. When you dishonor his name or his people, you're directly challenging his authority in your life, whether you realize it or not, the authority that you need for your life to be all that it should be and could be if you were submitted to it. Without a doubt, submitting your life to his authority is one of the hardest things that most of us will ever do. It means swallowing your pride, denying yourself, giving up your own dreams when they don't line up with his plans. Submitting your life to God's authority means accepting the authority of his word over your life, all of it, even the parts you really don't like. It means loving like he loved, even when you don't feel like it. It means giving like he gave, even when you don't think you should have to. It means forgiving like he forgave, even when you don't want to. It means putting others before yourself, even when they don't deserve it. And it means serving his purposes in your life instead of your own. Submitting your life to God's authority means giving him every ounce of yourself unreservedly, which is our enemy's greatest fear. And so he offers counterfeit arguments to get us to question the authority of God in our lives, to try and make us believe that we're taking back control of our lives. It's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve. They thought they were doing, they thought they were taking control when actually they were giving it away to the one person whose sole desire was to destroy them. That's exactly what the enemy through the spirit of the Antichrist has been trying to do to God's people ever since. And he usually does it from within. John MacArthur once said, Satan is most effective in the church when he comes not as an open enemy, but as a false friend. Not when he persecutes the church, but when he joins it. Not when he attacks the pulpit, but when he stands in it. The enemy's a liar. A counterfeit Christ. He is anti-Christ which means anything that we participate that is complicit with his counterfeit is anti-Christ as well. I'm just telling you, I don't want the authority in my life to come from a counterfeit God. I don't want my source of truth in this life to be a cheap and powerless imitation of the real thing. No, I want Jesus Christ or nothing at all. Let's pray.